Hello and welcome back to Counterintuitive, a governance podcast. I'm your host, Dr Paul Sagar, a lecturer in the Department of Political Economy here at King's College London, and this podcast is made in association with the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. Each week on this podcast, I invite a speaker to come and defend an idea that is to some degree counterintuitive. I play the role of devil's advocate or sceptical inquirer in order to see where the ideas will take us. Of course, whether you agree with me or my speakers is, in the final instance, entirely up to you. Today on Counterintuitive, I'm speaking to Dr Jonathan Benson. Jonathan is now Assistant Professor of Political and Economic Philosophy at the Ethics Institute at Utrecht University. Prior to this, however, he was a lecturer here at the Department of Political Economy at King's College London. The counterintuitive idea that Jonathan will be defending today is that we need more, not less, direct democracy in our political institutions. So, Jonathan Benson, welcome to Counterintuitive. Thank you for having me. No problem. So, one of the counterintuitive ideas we'll be exploring today is that we need more democracy, not less, in our political system. And that may come as a surprise to some people uh, in the wake of, for example, the 2016 election of Donald Trump and prior to that, the Brexit vote. There may be a constituency out there of people who think that actually asking ordinary people what they think on complex issues doesn't work. And perhaps what we need is a little bit less direct democracy and a little bit more thinking on behalf of our representatives who get on with doing the job for us, whilst perhaps acting as a break on popular opinion. But I take it you're in favour of more direct democracy, not less, which I think to some people might seem um, counterintuitive, as the name of the podcast would indicate. So why don't you just lead off by telling us what it is about direct democracy that you think we need more of and, and how we might want to structure that? Good. So I do think we need some more democracy, but it's important to also take into account that we need more democracy of a particular kind. So not all kinds of direct democracy, not all kinds of democracy generally are exactly the same, and not all kinds of democracy are fitting for all situations. Okay, so the main kind of democracy that I want to talk about today is what's called in the literature mini-publics. Right? So these kind of publics in miniature. And what the key features of these kind of democracy is, is that they rely on random selection. So some kind called sortitions, sometimes called lotteries. And what essentially they do is that they create small forums for public to engage with policy debates. Um, and they select the public from random. Sometimes they stratify the sample, make sure you have enough people who are women, enough demographic factors. But generally you're randomly selected to take part, a bit like jury service. That's just the one area we kind of see most random selection at the moment. And these mini publics are held for anything from up to a day to 25 days, going over many months. And they've been used to find out the public's opinion on a range of topics, anything from Brexit policy to changes in referendums or electoral cycles to genetically modified foods. And the reason that many people find these a kind of uh, interesting way of doing democracy and adding more democracy to our societies is because they allow for greater public control, right? So for the moment we're kind of asked to vote every four or five years, but a citizens' assembly allows people to have a more engaged view on what politics is and a particular issue. Right? So they allow for public control in a more informed way. They often hear experts give testimony during these assemblies. They're more representative. Right? So unlike our parliaments that have very few people who are women, very few people from minority backgrounds, these groups are representative of the society and they engage in deliberation. 
Right? So many political theorists like myself think that debate and argument and reasonable argument is very important to democracy. And these kind of structured forums help to provide that kind of engagement. So I think more democracy is good, but it's important to talk about what kind of democracy. And I think many publics are a good place to start. That's really helpful. Thanks. What about the reply, though, that many publics sound good in theory, um, but this is just a kind of academic game that we might be playing, you know, that, oh, it'd be nice if we had people come and sit around and deliberate a little bit more. Um, but where's the place for this in real politics? Um, how, how is it that we could ever envisage a mini public actually improving our political process? Good. So if you were talking um, a few decades ago, then this would be a kind of thought philosophical game, right? These weren't particularly used, these mini publics. And philosophers and deliberative Democrats used to talk about effective deliberation without much sort of real life experience. But over the last sort of couple of decades, we've seen a proliferation of the use of these kinds of mini publics. We've seen experiments run by academics, but also them used by governments. And even recently, particularly in Belgium, we've seen the move to try and institutionalize them, make them permanent features of um, our political systems. Right. So if I can give um, one example, um, this um, people may be aware of from the popular media, is from Ireland. So you saw a lot of media attention on the referendum over abortion in Ireland and the passing of the legalization of abortion. But what is not always as well known is that referendum actually started in the mini public in the citizens' assembly. And it was because of the recommendations that those citizens in that assembly made to legalize abortion that that eventually became a referendum topic that the government committed to enacting, depending on which way the referendum went. So in that case, you had a mini public having a direct real world effect through this referendum. And they can have many different kinds of effects. Right? So some purely give advice, right? purely recommendations to government. One such as in British Columbia were guaranteed to lead to a referendum, right? this one's on a voting system in British Columbia. And we can, of course, think of new ways of using them in different in um, our political contexts, right? So perhaps they should take final decisions for themselves, right? Perhaps they can decide when we should use referendums in certain places and not others. Um, in Oregon, they're used to provide voters with information. So every time you get a ballot initiative, for example, a mini public is created, they come up with what they think are the most important facts, the most important reasons for and against, and then that's distributed to public in a pamphlet. Right, so there's now a huge proliferation of the use of these mini publics, and they can be effective in many different ways and used in many different ways. It's great to hear that they've actually been tried and aren't simply a matter of theory. But I suppose one um, worry that skeptics might have would be, what's the quality of the deliberation that goes on in these arenas? Because obviously, if you're taking a wide cross section of people, you're usually going to be consulting people who don't really know anything about a particular topic and you might provide them with some information some some pamphlets some statistical data um, but surely what you're going to get here is an aggregation of people who don't really know what they're talking about or what their um, what the relevant options should be and how they will work and one of the oldest arguments of course for representative democracy is that representatives can go off and act as judges that they're not simply conduits for the opinions of their constituents but they actually go off and represent them and make decisions in a more informed way by people who are whose job it is to do this and um, isn't there a worry here that that mini publics will uh, lower the quality of decision making rather than improve it precisely because it's taking a cross-section of the population well one of the attractive things about mini publics is they allow a certain group of citizens 
to act as these more informed judges, like our representatives currently do, without all the downsides of our political representatives, right? The fact that they belong to a political class, the fact they might have other kinds of interests as that class, economic capture, and these kinds of things. So when you come to a mini public, often there is a significant amount of time spent to informing um, the members. So for example, in the British Columbia Assembly I mentioned already, they had a long initial stage where they purely listened to experts on different kinds of voting systems and learn about their, the way they operated and their advantages and disadvantages. And the evidence suggests that these citizens almost became sort of lay experts in this area by the time they went through this. Um, the Citizens' Assembly on Brexit was run by um, UK and a change in Europe. Similarly, had a whole weekend based on informing uh, the citizens about the EU and about the different kinds of Brexit on offer. Right, and what their proposed advantages and disadvantages were. Right? Hearing from politicians, hearing from experts. So they do allow people to come much more informed and much more informed than you would have, say, in the referendum or an election. And on the quality of deliberation, well, there's now lots of evidence to suggest that these main publics can actually produce very effective forms of argument between the individuals involved. Right? And one of the reasons why it's affected is exactly the reason you thought someone might be skeptical about it. It's because it's diverse. Because you have people from many different backgrounds and different perspectives, you don't have an echo chamber, but you have a mix of different kinds um, of opinions. And generally that deliberation comes forward in a very um, reflective way. So it is important to justify there can be limits to this. So some studies suggest that the deliberations you find in parliaments and congresses are better in terms of justification. They present better and stronger arguments for their side than the citizens do in mini-publics. Right? There's some question about whether that holds for the mini-publics that run for months, but they certainly seem like maybe better when it comes to the ones that last for a couple of days. But the problem is, is that those parliamentary debates might be good at giving a strong argument, but they don't reflect at all. Right? There's hardly any changes of opinion, and for the obvious reasons. You have strong party discipline, people have public positions they're committed to, so they might give a good argument, but they certainly aren't considering the arguments on the other side or really changing their mind. That kind of reflection really is produced by the mini-publics. Right? There you do get people, because they are lay citizens, because they're not partisans, reflecting on the arguments, changing their minds, and really trying to consider what they think is the best policy for the sort of country or the community um, as a whole. There is, of course, a important caveat, which is that mini-publics can produce this deliberation if they're structured appropriately. Right? So it's not guaranteed. Of course, you put any citizens, you throw them in a room, bad things could obviously happen. But if you take the time to appropriately structure them, make sure they're diverse, make sure you have trained moderators to help lead people through discussion, make sure that people aren't being shouted over, everyone gets an opportunity. So when they're structured in that appropriate way, then actually they can have very high information and very high forms of deliberation. That's great. Just before we go back to some of those issues and explore them in a bit more detail, let's go back to something you said at the start that... This is a system that relies on sortition or selection by lot. And many people find that a strange idea. You know, isn't, isn't this um, odd to just pick people at random? Uh, you know, surely there must be a better mechanism than just randomly selecting people by lottery. And, and indeed, it doesn't sound very democratic. I mean, isn't democracy about uh, people, all people going out and voting uh, for what they want rather than some people being selected at random uh, and given a privileged opportunity to try and influence policy? So, so maybe tell us a bit more about the idea there. So lot is this idea that we should randomly select some citizens to take part in the decision-making or in giving advice. And in a surprising way, this is actually 
historically been thought of as much more democratic than elections. If you go back to the Greeks, it was random selection that was thought to be the democratic option, whilst elections were more oligarchic. Well, wh- why is re- that? Can you just explain that? Because you know, it, se- it seems counterintuitive to us today that, that random selection would be more democratic than elections. So the reason for the kind of more classical scholars was that what sortition did is it broke a distinction between um, the rulers and the ruled. Right? As long as you have elections, you still have a certain class of people who are going to be in control and a certain class of people who are going to have to follow those decisions. Right? It's not as strong a distinction as you get in, an olig- in a true oligarchy or an um, autocracy, but you're still going to have a certain people in line. And as we see in our contemporary democracies, we do get a certain political class, right? We, don't, we have people who are professional politicians who tend to come from Burton backgrounds, who do make the laws, who do rule. Sortition was thought to break that. Because you are randomly selected to take part, and then because there's rotation, you're then put back into the public and more people are then randomly selected. You don't have this clear distinction. So therefore, it's thought to be more democratic. More contemporary theorists also think it's democratic because it preserves a certain kind of political um, equality. So voting gives you a certain kind of political equality. Everybody has that one person, one vote. There's equality between them. It's a traditional town hall meeting. It shows a quality of opportunity to influence. Anyone can turn up at the town hall and speak if they choose to. While statistician gives you an equal chance of being included. It expresses that fundamental idea of political economy through the fact, political um, equality, I should say, um, through the fact that it gives everyone this equal chance of being included. So it preserves that kind of equality and it sort of helps to break down this idea that we have a group of people who are there to rule and a group of people who are there to be ruled. Now, there are some concerns, of course, from a democratic perspective, right? as you mentioned. Right? It doesn't seem necessarily democratic to have this small group of people having their say and the rest of the people stuck outside the forum. And there's a couple of things that are important to consider here. Firstly, is that although there's a certain minority of people who do, generally people don't think we should just abolish elections in favor of sortition. Right? We need some kind of mixed system. So just because you're not included in the main public doesn't mean you're not going to have your vote. It doesn't mean you can't go on protest. It doesn't mean you can't vote uh, right to representatives. And all those kinds of participation that we already have can carry on going in these kinds of systems. And also it's important to notice that inclusion and participation is not only about numbers. Right? It's not just how many people can participate. It's about the kind of participation and the quality of that participation. And these mini publics allow for much more consideration, reflection, much more information, than you would get from voters in a referendum or election. And you allow for certain kinds of representative um, participation that you're not going to get in your, or at least less likely to get in your elected parliament. If you go to a mini public, one of the things that's quite um, immediately obvious is that the diversity of people there, it looks very different from the people you see speaking on the television. Many more accents from areas of more working class background, many older people, Many people from, aren't from cities, right? It's a very different makeup and it's much more representative of what our actual populations look like than you're going to get in Westminster or the Congress in the US or wherever. Right. Let's go back maybe to the idea of deliberation again, because isn't there a risk that when you put lots of people together who are going to disagree about um, political issues and disagree quite fiercely, aren't you more likely to make them uh, less tolerant of each other than tolerant of each other? In my experience, people 
don't like political disagreement. Vast majority of political theorists, we're a bit different, but the vast majority of ordinary people don't like political conflict and they would rather not have it in the room. And they're more likely to be able to tolerate other people who disagree with them if they don't actually have to speak politics with them. Isn't there a risk that getting people together and asking them to talk politics and expose their difference to each other is going to lead to more antagonism and a more factious uh, adversarial kind of politics rather than the kind of dampening down of uh, the very fraught relations that we're seeing in the Western world at the moment? Could these mini publics not actually end up being somewhat counterproductive? Well, there can be cases if they're not structured appropriately, you might get kind of breakdowns or failures in deliberation. But when they're done well, we don't find that this happens. Right? Often if you don't actually ever get to speak to the people on the other side of the debate, you don't ever get to understand them, you only see them through how they're presented, for example, in the media sources you read. Right? That all Brexiteers are like they're described in The Guardian, right? and all Remainers are like they're described in The Daily Mail then you're not going to have a decent understanding of these people. But right? you're going to see them as these kind of monsters, strange monsters who you don't understand. The mini public helps to break that down. Right? You see that these are just genuine people. You see that often they actually have quite shared values. Right? So take the Sins Assembly that was held on Brexit policy. One of the first exercises they did was to have people put out the values and the considerations they thought were most important whilst judging Brexit policy. And it was great agreement across the whole of the Assembly. Right? And this Assembly was purposely made to have sort of a relatively representative of how people voted in the referendum, right? both leave, remain, and didn't vote at all. And they shared many of the same similar values, but right? they saw that they shared them and they found that interesting. Right? So although they disagreed on how they voted, they actually had many things in common. And then they built from that into their discussions of what the kind of Brexit policy they wanted, trade agreements, immigration agreements, and the like. Right? So when they're structured appropriately, and when you have these many publics designed based on rules of mutual respect, then you don't necessarily get a fist fight in the middle of the assembly. Actually, you find that people are very considerate and respectful for each other. Right? And often the members of these assemblies say afterwards in surveys that they find them very enjoyable experiences, very positive experiences. Um, and they say that they generally thought that people were respected of their opinions, irrespective of whether um, they agreed with those opinions. That's very interesting. Is there not, though, a separate worry, one that I was alerted to when I actually observed um, a series of mini-publics uh, at, at an event, a direct democracy event, it must have been about 10 years ago now, and I was there simply as an observer, I, I wasn't a participant, and I wasn't allowed to talk, I could only watch. But I remember watching one subgroup before they were feeding back to the, the main um, hall, and what happened was there were two people in the group of about 10 or so who were very closely ideologically aligned and were very bolshy and very confident. And they quickly assumed a position. I don't think they realized they were doing this, but they assumed a position of leading the discussion within that group. And what seemed to happen is that what really emerged had the guise of being a... Um, a deliberative consensus opinion, but was in fact some people deferring to the orators, if you will, the most persuasive. It ended up not being so much a democratic consensus as what you might call the despotism of the best rhetoricians. Is that not a danger in these situations? It's always a danger. So deliberation, in the way that political theorists talk about deliberation, is meant to be a sort of free and equal process where people and all have the opportunity to speak and respond to the best kind of reasons. Now, that sounds great in theory, but of course, there's the obvious challenge that when it comes to reality, not everybody 
is equally good at speaking. Right? Some people are just more confident than others. Some people are shy. Some people have a great vocabulary, can string words together on the spot. Other people can stumble over things and find it hard to express themselves. So people have different quality abilities when it comes to speaking, but also they're perceived very differently. Right? So another important challenge, which is similar to the one you're raising, is aren't people just going to listen to the middle-class white men? Because right? those are generally in society perceived to be dominant or knowledgeable about politics, and they're going to ignore more minority people or women. Okay, so if anyone in interest in political theory will know sort of Miranda Fricker talked about epistemic injustice. Like some people just downgrade what some people are saying because of their, their identity. Right? It's like, oh, they can't know this because they don't fit the role of a politician or something like this. Right? And that, of course, affects female candidates for, for parliament as well. So what many publics do is they try to structure themselves in ways that, tr that attempt to mitigate or manage this kind of problem. Okay, so one thing is using trained moderators that I mentioned before, like people who have expert training in moderating these small group discussions, trying to make sure that everybody can speak and no one person dominates. Okay, and if that's done effectively well, you can get a better distribution um, of who's speaking. in this You can also make sure that when you create these small groups, so normally a mini public can involve anything from 50 to 150 individuals right, who can't all speak together, so they form these smaller groups, is that you can make sure that those individual groups are diverse, whether it's in background or political opinion, and you can change them. Right? You can make sure that people don't always stick to the same small group. So your two friends in your example who are sort of making a little alliance to dominate that small group, well, the next one, they'd be spread apart, right? They'd be making sure there's diversity and making sure there's difference in this. So there's lots of these little structural factors that can come in to try and mitigate this. And someone like um, James Fiskin, he's done an analysis of a large number of deliberative polls that try and show that actually you do get a generally fair spread um, of speakers. And he also found you don't get a significant shift of opinion towards uh, more privileged groups. And so he looked at how people changed their opinion um, in his deliberative polls and looked whether or not they moved closer to the prior opinions of the, say, white middle-class men or the other way around. And he found that they didn't. Generally, half and half, they went in different directions across a large number of deliberative polls. So that kind of evidence is at least is reassuring. But it's always going to depend on how well they're structured. And you can never get rid of these dynamics completely. Right? We're human beings. We're not perfect deliberators. This kind of mucky world, real world stuff that happens when you get human beings in a room can potentially happen. But we also need to keep in mind, well, what's the alternative? Right? We're more likely to get that decent level of deliberation in this structured form than we're going to get it in the public sphere necessarily. And we may get it much more than we're going to get it in elected parliaments, right? That are not representative in any well. And likewise, do give a certain amount of um, advantage to good speakers. Right? So even very, sometimes very unpopular politicians can be very effective in Parliament, right? So Margaret Thatcher was despised by half the population, but fantastic in Prime Minister's questions because she had that rhetorical skill that someone like a, you know, Gordon Brown or Jeremy Corbyn perhaps lacked their rhetorical skill, right? So what are we comparing this to? Right? Where's the best places we can get this deliberation? Many publics is one of the places where it looks like we got a good chance of, of, of finding it. Fantastic. 
So that takes me to an issue that you've raised several times now in, in response here that we have to structure this properly. It has to be structured properly. You need well-trained moderators. You need reconfigurations. That leads to the worry that, well, isn't then this really just a kind of technocracy in disguise, right? That the experts are running the mini public and they come in and they, they create this artificial environment and they introduce these artificial moderators and they allow the people to have a debate within the confines of what the experts deem a good debate to be. And isn't this really just, therefore, a kind of sham democracy? Isn't this dem you know, managed democracy at this level, controlled by a bunch of experts, is actually a technocracy? How would you respond to that kind of worry? If indeed it is a worry, maybe it's not. Maybe that's the right interpretation and that's good. I, I don't know how you feel about that. Well, there's versions of this objection which I think are very worrying. There are forms that I think are a bit less worrying. So one worry that people give is that, well, as soon as you give people some expert testimony, they're going to follow the experts, and then what you really have is expert testimony. Like whoever was the academic or policymaker that you gave to give a speech about why staying in um, the free movement area after Brexit is a good thing or a bad thing, they just end up actually making the decision. This, I don't think, is as worrying as um, many of the objectors say, partly because often many parties go to great lengths to make sure that their speakers are representative, which they're not just hearing an expert of one opinion. And citizens are often quite good at interrogating and asking questions to these, to these experts. Another form of the objection, which I do think is very worrying, is to the extent to which these many publics can be beholden to a kind of technocratic capture, right? and a political capture as well. They tend to only be set up by politicians when politicians want them, right? either because they want to avoid the decision or because they just want to have legitimacy for the decision they already want to take. Or you get the same thing similar coming from um, from civil servants. So NHS citizens is one example in the UK. There's been a new paper come out recently on this, which found that as soon as the, the assembly seemed to be a little bit less politically convenient, right, as soon as there were some changes amongst the administration and changes of views, the funding suddenly dried up, right? And it dried up for very directly political reasons, right? So this kind of technocratic capture, I think, is very kind of concerning, right? technocratic and political capture. And I think that's one of the reasons why actually we should move to a greater institutionalization of these mini publics. Right? It's a problem that civil servants and politicians can just select them whenever they're convenient. Right? If we move to a system where they get triggered necessarily in certain cases, where they become more permanent features, then they can't be kicked around in this same way to the same extent. And then we can have more transparent, more formalized rules for how these assemblies um, can be run. And we can also experiment with giving the citizen assemblies a little bit more control over the rules of how they run and the options that are available to them. So generally, a mini public at the moment doesn't set the agenda. Right? Someone picks what the question is. Right? But there are models that suggest that we should have a mini public set up that decides what questions are actually most important. So the version of mini publics that they want to institutionalize in Belgium starts with an assembly that tries to pick important topics and then those topics go to some smaller assemblies for discussion, right? So citizens are more in control of the agenda. We can also think of them as being able to put new options on the table. So take the citizens assembly on Brexit as an example. So the main options they had at the beginning were set by the people who run the assembly, right? So they looked at the political debate and they said, these are the main views and what seems plausible. And that's what they can, the citizens can choose between. But the citizens also could modify these suggestions. So when it came to free movement, for example, they were given the option to stay in the free movement area or to go to a new 
um, migration regime with the EU. But during listening to the experts speak, they found out something that I think a lot of the British public wasn't aware of during the referendum, which is actually that the free movement area allows each country to put certain kinds of restrictions. So for example, if a person doesn't find a job within a certain amount of time, they can be sent back to their original member state of the European Union. And this was new to mem many members of the assembly, and I think it's probably new to many people in the British public. And because they heard that, they said, well, we want another option. We want to stay in the free movement area, but the government uses all the controls that are currently allowed um, within those rules, the EU rules, that it's not currently enforcing. And that became the most popular. Right? So they came up with their own tweak on actually the option, and that was the most popular. So citizens can take a certain amount of power within these assemblies, and we can start to think about ways of increasing that power. A worry here, though, is going to be, that's all very heartening, and a lot of what you said seems extremely you know, plausible and less counterintuitive when the details are explained. But an objection here is going to be, how on earth can this be scaled up to a national level? Right? There's no sense in which we can engage the entire public in a mini-public, and there's no sense in which we can use these things to force politicians to pay attention to the outcomes of these many publics. So whilst everything you said is nice and heartening, isn't it also fundamentally untranslatable into the world of real politics? We can't replace elections and referenda with many publics. So is this ultimately all very interesting, but a little bit otios when it comes to real politics? Well, there's a couple of ways of thinking about this kind of um, objection of the scaling up problem. So one thing you said is you can't force the politicians to pay attention. Well, if you start to institutionalize them, make them more permanent features, right, and have them as a more visible force within politics, then you can start to apply pressure on politicians. Right? If the rest of the public are aware that citizens are taking certain decisions, then they can start to hold those um, elected representatives responsible for the fact that they're ignoring the wishes of these assemblies. But also you can have them buy in in advance. Right? So the British Columbia Citizens Assembly on Electoral Reform, in advance, the government committed to having a referendum if the assembly decided they wanted to change in the electoral system. So they committed to it in advance and they went to that referendum. So by looking at ways of institutionalizing them and not making these kind of one-off affairs can help deal with that kind of problem. The problem of scale in terms of, well, it's very nice that all these people in the assembly are deliberating and becoming friends, but what about the rest of us on the outside? Well, that isn't something you're going to get over, right? You can't have everyone involved because it's no longer a mini public. It's just the public, right, which we already have. So what some deliberative theorists have started to talk about is that we should also see a role of mini publics, not only in the way in which they might feed into decisions, but the way in which they might be sites of deliberation making. Right? They can help produce more effective deliberation in the rest of the, the society. Right, so the Oregon example is one case in which they're trying to do this. They have a ballot initiative, right, which is similar to a referendum. And the Citizens Assembly is held purely for the purpose of creating a pamphlet of the most important facts and what the citizens in that assembly think are the best reasons on either side of that debate. Right? And they then distribute this to as many people within um, registered voters as possible. So there you have a small amount of deliberation happening in the public, but trying to spread that and engage that with the rest of the public. Of course, this, none of this is perfect, right? Just because you put a leaflet through someone's door doesn't mean they're going to read it. But it's at least these attempts to try and make them not only sites of decision-making, but of deliberation-making. Right? And in the British Columbia case, for example, you saw some of the members 
become active advocates in the referendum. Right? So they went outside of the forum to engage more. And obviously that's a choice of the individual citizens. These are private citizens we have to remember, right? They're not people who've chosen to run for office or anything. But trying to see these as assemblies which can contribute to wider forms of deliberation and not just be these kind of microcosms is something that I think is increasingly being thought about. I think as a final question to interrogate, what would you say to somebody who challenges the level of organization and management that goes on here and the extent to which, as I said before, this might have a certain technocratic aspect that politicians bring them into being when they want to pay attention to them and ignore them when they don't want to pay attention to them. That this isn't just something that, as you said, is concerning, that that's you know, a risk that might happen. But there's a deeper objection here that democracy has to be fundamentally an unruly sort of process, a mass engagement of the people, not a mini public, not in a controlled artificial environment where the people are being assisted to come to better informed decisions, but that it's a deep structural feature of democracy, that it's unruly and that it has to be. And that what you're proposing isn't so much a tweak to democracy as something that is potentially incompatible with the kinds of democracies that we have at the moment. Is this actually a much more radical proposal than perhaps you've been uh, suggesting. Does deliberative democracy sometimes get offered as, well, you know, this is uh, something that can be used in addition, when in fact what it would really require is a, is a revolution in our thinking about how to do democracy? I don't think it necessarily does. I mean, firstly, we shouldn't think that deliberative democracy means many publics. Right? Deliberative democracy means democracy based on debate and discussion in a reasonable way, of which one kind of that can be many publics. And as long as we're not saying that we need to repeatedly replace our elections or completely replace our public sphere with these well-structured deliberative forums, then there's no reason why the unruly, the wild public sphere, right, to use Habermas's terms, right, the kind of one of the contemporary origins of deliberative democratic theory, right, we don't have to replace them with these kind of controlled publics, right, that can happen anyway. What repugnant publics can do is they can just provide something that is important to democracy and can helpful for democracy, which those other areas currently can't provide. Right? It can provide a kind of informed engagement, a strong, deliberative and reflective kind of engagement in politics, which you don't necessarily get in the public sphere, right? and you don't necessarily get in parliaments. Right? So it's not saying that it provides everything that democracy needs. Right? It doesn't provide everything democracy needs. But it provides some of those goods that are lacking currently. And we shouldn't ignore ways of improving our elections and improving our public spheres, right? So perhaps we do need better media regulation. Right? Perhaps we do need better campaign finance regulation. There might be many things we can do to improve these spheres that have nothing to do with the publics. But none of those improvements seem to get us to a position where we're going to have very reasonable and reflective forms of citizens' engagement um, and citizens' deliberation. Many publics can do that. So we need to think about ways of connecting them to these other democratic spaces, not replacing those spaces, but connecting them to them, getting all the right kind of goods from the right places. That makes sense. So this has kind of been a big project of deliberative democratic theorists um, you know, more recently, which is to talk about deliberative systems. Right? It's not about the quality of one forum, one assembly, one parliament. It's about how these things fit together in a system to create a democratic society. Right. Many publics are a role in that system. They're not the whole system. Johnny, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks so much for having me, Paul.